Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, with reports of hospital emergency rooms under strain and cases of flu, RSV, and COVID-19 spiking right across Canada, healthcare has surpassed inflation as the top national issue of concern. What's being done to solve those problems? Well, we'll talk about that. Canadians are significantly more comfortable celebrating with family and friends this holiday season. Oksana Kischuk, the Director of Strategy and Insights with Abacus Data, will join us to talk about that. And Doug Ford calls out for the Auditor General saying she needs to stay in her lane. We cover that and more with John Best, the publisher of the Bay Observer. It's all coming up on the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Interesting survey from uh, Nick Nanos, the Nanos Group, uh, who do a, a great job, as uh, so many of the pollsters do in this country, of keeping their finger on the pulse of what we're thinking about and what we're concerned about. And I know the last couple of uh, times they've done this over the last number of months, invariably they've said uh, well yeah you know the economy is the number one issue inflation's killing us that's changed this latest poll the number one issue on just about everybody's minds is health care and not surprisingly either uh because well just as we thought things were going to get better with the pandemic behind us it's not behind us uh and of course with some respiratory diseases that are starting to rear their ugly heads now that we're into the colder season now uh there's a concern right now about the uh, the load that's on hospitals and as you know, first of all, the concern was for children with these respiratory diseases. Now, doctors are concerned that seniors will be the next wave of patients hospitalized with respiratory illnesses, including RSV. Global's Brianna Carnegie has details. Pediatric hospitals have been jam-packed for weeks, as we hear from Toronto-based pediatrician Dr. Anna Banerjee. Emergency departments are full. There's no beds for the kids to go. Experts believe that's a sign of what's to come for regular hospitals as well, as illness spread moves from children to grandparents and more RSV could circulate among the vulnerable senior population. There is not currently an RSV vaccine available for seniors, but Health Canada said yesterday it has received word from G. GSK and Pfizer that vaccines could be in the works, although reviewing submissions does take some time. Experts say families can help protect their loved ones by minimizing contact, wearing a mask, and staying home if you're feeling unwell. Brianna Carnegie, Global News. Thanks, Brianna. And that, that, by the way, is only one element of this. There are so many other aspects. Uh, it's flu season, and uh, they're expecting a lot more flu cases as as well as uh, the other respiratory diseases that we've talked about. It's no wonder that we're so concerned about healthcare these days. And uh, COVID-19, of course, spiking across Canada once again. So what do we do about this? Uh, well, there's going to be an awful lot of pressure on people in the healthcare system and a lot of pressure right now to try to find some solutions uh, to the growing concern that's going on with the healthcare system. And it's not just hospitals. It's a, a much broader uh, concern, I think, in most people's minds. Joining us to talk about this is uh, Cliff Vanderlyn. Uh, Cliff is the director of the Digital Society Lab at McMaster University. He's also the CEO of Vox Pox Lab. Vox Pop Lab. Sorry. Uh, first of all, Cliff, thanks so much on a very busy day for joining us. I appreciate the time today. Oh, thanks for having me, Bill. Listen, given given the concern and the news stories, I mean, you need to only look or pick up a newspaper, listen to a radio station like this for a couple of minutes, and it's it's healthcare, 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 and it's a uh, uh, very concerning news. I, I'm not surprised that healthcare is the number one issue. Are you? It doesn't surprise me either, especially given how salient it's been in the uh, news media. 
But what I would say about the poll that's been released is that um, we're reading too much into the changes in public opinion uh, month to month. If you look at the margin of error associated with this poll, it's 3.1 percentage points, meaning that actually the shifts that we see in this in, in these numbers are not statistically significant shifts. And that's not to say that healthcare isn't the most important issue. It's just to say that it's it's been very important for Canadians all along. And, and you know something, since 1960, I think... <laughs> As far back as, as most of us can, or the or records were kept, uh, anytime you stop people on the street and say, what's the number one issue? It's always going to be health care. I mean, because, you know, it's our kids' health, it's our seniors' health, it's everything, and variations on the theme. And you're right, it ebbs and flows. What I found interesting about the Nanos poll, though, is that uh, what they, they called this, uh, <laughs> this, this was called the unprompted answer. In other words, usually when there's polling, and like you and I have talked about this in the past, they'll say, well, you know, Cliff, what do you think about this? And they'll give you four different options or whatever the number might be. Uh, they didn't give you any options. They just said, what's the number one issue? And, and unprompted, in other words, without, you know, even that being in front of them, they said healthcare. So uh, I, I could well be the time. I mean, you know, we're heading into winter and there's always a concern about healthcare during the colder months now because of flu vaccine and COVID hasn't gone away right now. So it's a uh, it's front of mind, but it, even if it was never front of mind, it's always been pretty close, hasn't it? Yes, and I think that's what you're seeing in these numbers. I think one bill on the on the sampling methodology, I agree with you that this unprompted approach uh, is a good shift in the way that we capture public opinion. So instead of giving people these uh, fixed uh, items that we think are most important as pollsters or researchers, we let people speak for themselves and then uh, take whatever they tell us and to convert them into a series of categories. And I think that's a better way to try to tap into what really matters to people instead of priming them on the on the on the relevance of healthcare, especially at this time, I think you're absolutely right that it makes sense that it would be uh, an issue given how hospitals seem to be overwhelmed uh, and that that's something that's top of mind for folks. Um, it's it's st clearly still competitive with inflation in the economy. And I think that's what we want to make sure that we are um, properly capturing and reading these polls, that there's actually no statistical significant difference, statistically significant difference between the um, uh, the proportion of people who indicate that healthcare is their most important issue and those who say inflation or or jobs, or even the environment. Those four issues are defining uh, really the Canadian psyche about what's important right now. And that's interesting because COVID-19 or specific mentions to the coronavirus got hardly any mentions, nominal, negligible mentions. Um, things like freedom of speech or uh, fear of the uh, of, of war, These, or even the deficit. All of these things are really negligible. It's just uh, very small groups of people who are saying that this is the most important issue. It's clear what the basket of important issues are for Canadians right now. How deeply down do we have to drill to actually get where people are at when you say that? Like you say, when you get an unprompted answer like this, healthcare is... A it's it's a pretty broad based you know umbrella there. I mean, as you say, are you talking about COVID? Are you talking about uh, vaccines? Are you talking about the flu uh, that's coming around here? Are you talking about getting a family doc? There's there's a lot of chapters in that book. Yes, and that's a, a very important point about this kind of polling. Um, I'm I'm generally in favor of unprompted uh, um, uh, questions, so not not telling people the list of items they can choose from when asking them what's important. But there's always a trade-off. And the trade-off is that 
when people just tell you what their most important issue is, someone has to go and say, well, I think this falls in this basket, and I think this falls in this basket. So for all 1,000 people who answered this poll, uh, the analyst, the polling analyst had to go and say, well, okay, based on what they said, I'm going to put this response in healthcare or inflation or or the economy. And those are choices made by the analysts. And I and I think these choices are, are, are relatively well-informed and they're intuitive, um, but there's always some sense of... Um, uh, the, the 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 decisions made by the analysts that play into how we categorize these issues. Yeah, you're shining a light on the on the polling system. I'm glad you're doing this too because you're absolutely right. I mean, I'm I'm looking at a news story about this. I I wasn't there when they did the pollings. I didn't get those results. Uh, but it's as you say, it's up to the pollsters themselves. Uh, after I give my answer, for instance, so if I'm one of the people that they call. Uh, to, to say, oh, that's a healthcare issue. Oh, no, that's an economic issue. Because I, I, I may not be that explicit. I may not say it's healthcare. I, I may relate a story about something and say, you know, this it could be wait times. It could be uh, I can't see my doctor in time or any number of different things like that. Uh, that they all of a sudden have to put, as you say, into one basket or another. So uh, when they say these numbers and these percentages, I guess I guess I'm not suggesting we have to take them with a grain of salt, but you, you have to look through a different filter with these to try to ascertain exactly what the public is saying here. Yes, I think that's absolutely right. For example, um, uh, in this poll, Nano separated out coronavirus and healthcare, which I thought was great because then people who explicitly mentioned COVID-19, they're pulled out. But you know that that's not the majority of people talking about healthcare. The people who are talking about healthcare in this poll seem to be people who are saying, look, regardless of the, the, the reasons, our healthcare system seems to be overwhelmed and we're really worried we're not going to get access to healthcare when we need it. And that's how I read these numbers because of the way that they've been categorized. In the same way, um, jobs and the economy were separated out from inflation. Some people might think of that as under the same big bucket of the economy, but it's nice that uh, that um, in this poll, at least, they've, they've been pulled out. So we know people who are specifically worried about the current state um, of inflation and people who have a, a more macro level concern about the way the economy is going. How do you analyze this, though, and, and, and try to draw some conclusions when you get raw numbers like this, frankly, and because there's so many different aspects of this. I mean, we know the political parties, especially those who were in government at the time, are looking at these things, and, and they may or may not have some uh, factor in, in how policy is going to be developed. Uh, I mean, healthcare has healthcare, but I mean, you know, that could be, you know, my my mother's in a long-term care facility, and, and the quality of service sucks there. You know, it's a uh, I guess that's a healthcare issue, but it's it's a long-term care facility. It's a staffing issue. It's a it's a it's a compensation issue for the people that are PSWs. I mean, there's a lot involved in that. Absolutely, and and I think any government and and I'm, I'm, I've heard you say this yourself, Bill. You know, you're, you're you're any government will be skeptical of a given poll, and you know the the famous phrase is the only poll that matters is the one that happens on election day. Mm -hmm. um, but nevertheless, I think this gives some indicator of the headwinds and where the headwinds are going, um, and and certainly tells us what issues are resonating uh, with Canadians right now, and 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 particularly what issues aren't. Um, and again, I, I think the fact that that uh, specific mentions of COVID nineteen are so low. Uh, uh, in this poll tells us that at least in the in the in in public opinion uh canadians have uh moved on from that being their top national concern whether or not it em empirically remains something that we should be concerned about uh they're more concerned about the the uh overall effects on the healthcare system and and access to healthcare are we paying attention i mean when when we're concerned about something like this cliff 
you know, it could be wait times. That's always a popular one at election time or COVID or as you say, but we're looking at government. I mean, we, we you're the guys we elected fix this for us. I mean, that's, that's the plea. Uh, are we paying attention to how they're doing it or as the case may be not doing it, you know, when health ministers get together, when policy is being developed like this, to, are, are we looking and, and critically analyzing what kind of solutions they're proposing? I think it's a pretty opaque uh, system in a lot of ways, and and it's difficult to get down to the the, the deep and and nuanced complexities that are uh, producing the kind of system we have, and and you know unfortunately I think that uh, politicians spend at least as much time trying to pass the buck uh, uh, on on uh, on on the. Um, failings of the healthcare system than uh, than try to resolve it because you see that um we have politicians at the provincial level claiming the federal government we have the federal government claiming the, the the provinces then we have individual sort of healthcare units or healthcare systems uh um or or organizations like the CMA or OMA being drawn into the debate about uh, what's what's working what's not working in our system uh and so it's a very complex web and difficult to parse out exactly where uh, the, the the most effective solutions lie. You just mentioned a number of different facets of healthcare. Are, are they all on the same page or are there conflicting interests there? I think it's rare that 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 everyone's singing the same tune uh, when it comes to healthcare policy. I mean, you have uh, two, uh, you know, as we often do in Ontario, we have one party uh, uh, in the uh, in the federal government, one party in the provincial government. So already you have partisan and ideological differences uh, that can that can um, uh, result in 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 the the feds and the provincial government locking horns on on certain issues, um, and and it can make cooperation difficult. But even when you have um, uh, the, the same party represented at the federal and the provincial level, you'll still see different interests based on the um, uh, what's what's going on on the ground, and and their ideologies, as you say, public versus private healthcare. Uh, you yeah. know, we don't want you know public healthcare. We don't want private healthcare. And on and on it goes. And I I, I find at least anyway, I, I don't know with the, the work you do, but in the research I get and the re the responses I get on this program. Uh, a lot of people are just regurgitating some of the talking points of the the, the you know the political party that they tend to, to lean towards anyway, and I'm not sure that's really moving the debate along. But it's it seems to be the way things are these days, and more so than ever, Bill. I mean, I mean, you've got you know decades of experience to tell us about whether there, there's been a significant and palpable shift in the way this um, in the way this sentiment occurs. But more and more, we see these. We you know, in in political science, we refer to these. Uh, um, uh, attitudes and behaviors as, as using terms like motivated reasoning and affective polarization. Uh, the the fact that you will um, uh, try to frame uh, issues and problems and even solutions through the lens of your own sort of partisan ideology, rather than trying to come to the table in a in a good faith way to think through problems in ways that you might not might not always fall in line with your your personal convictions. And this affective polarization, we're starting just to have this. Uh, animosity towards people simply because they have different partisan or ideological affiliations. And so even before you get to the argument or the particular issue that you want to debate, there's already this this uh, chasm between uh, Canadians on, on partisan lines. And, and that's not a, uh, a way to try and move forward and productively solve some of the issues that face us all, that, that, that impact all of us. Absolutely. Uh, I'd love to pursue this, but we're tight on time this morning with all the things we've got going on with the, uh, the Tree of Hope and everything else. Uh, Cliff, it's always a pleasure. Thank you so much for the time today. Really appreciate your insights here. Thank you so much, Bill. Take care.
Cliff Vanderlinden, uh, the director of Digital Society Lab at McMaster University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. So how are you going to spend the holiday season this year? I mean, let's face it, there have been some restrictions, a lot of concern, a lot of angst over the last couple of years because of the pandemic. Uh, we've had direction from medical authorities and political authorities about how many of us can get together, uh, how long we should be there, how close we should be to each other. Well, um, I don't think it's going to be that way this year. At least the the numbers that we see uh, seem to indicate that there's been a change of attitude among uh, many of us uh, when it comes to how we're going to spend the Christmas time this year. Uh, the folks at Abacus Data asked Canadians about that, and they got some rather interesting results. And to talk about that, uh, please to welcome back to the program, Oksana Kischuk, who is the Director of Strategy and Insights with Abacus Data. Uh, Oksana, great to have you back on the show. Uh, best of the holiday season. Merry Christmas. I, I'm interested, as I was going through your data here, about the way we're changing our attitude right now. I, I think a lot of us were concerned over the last couple of years because of the pandemic. It seems as if that angst has uh, dissipated a great deal now. Yeah, I mean, numbers are, are quite shocking and just sort of how much we're going back to, to holiday gatherings at what they once were before all of this started. <laughs> well, when you look at last year compared to this year, we'll use that one as, as a, an example because I know you used that comparator when you were talking about uh, the numbers of people that actually adhered to the restrictions that were in place at the time. Uh, it seems that we're a lot more comfortable celebrating with family and friends and uh, the, we're back to the crowded holiday season uh, parties now, aren't we? Yeah, I mean, just just one example of, of what we're seeing. So last year, 2021, 51% of Canadians said they'll not get together with family outside of their household at all. Uh, this year, that number is 12%. So that's a 39-point difference year over year, which is quite, quite large. Now, what's interesting about this is, you know, the reality here is that COVID is still here. Uh, the respiratory flu's here. I mean, you know, there's a lot going on here right now. Uh, and, and I know a large number of the people that you uh, you talk to here are kind of taking a wait-and-see attitude. We're not sure we're going to do it in, in a big way this year. We're going to kind of wait and see what the lay of the land is as we get closer. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So there's still that 44%, almost half, are saying, I may still get together, but I'm going to be extra cautious and safe if I do. So there's still sort of that residual um, post-pandemic or maybe until in-pandemic sort of feeling. And then I think also sort of other respiratory viruses and, and the spread of all sorts of sort of things that have been swirling through the schools and, and our communities over the past couple of months um, is sort of making people not quite jump back into it, but they're definitely going to to be interested in getting together again. I know in other endeavors, uh, whether it's you know going to ball games, concerts, whatever the case might be, uh, health authorities have all always cautious, even now, continue to caution us that look, let's just play it cool and and you know err on the side of caution. Uh, but a lot of the folks that responded to your survey simply said, "We're going through with this. I don't care what the health authorities say. Enough is enough." Yeah, so we, we then kind of posed a question. So if health authorities stepped in and they said um, they're encouraging people not to gather unless everyone's from the same household or is vaccinated, what would you do? Um, and, and exactly, people are still saying, I'm probably going to get together um, with folks. There's a slight increase in people who are going to stay home, but but people are kind of moving forward with their holiday plans um, and they're going to see people at the very least this holiday season. And there's a, a, a geographic breakdown to this too, I guess. Uh, mm -hmm. According to your numbers, the folks in BC would be the most compliant. Ontario and Quebec, not so much. 
Yeah, yeah, Ontario, Quebec, not so much. Atlantic Canada, uh, really interested in getting together with, with family and friends over the holidays. But yeah, BC is, is going to be exercising the most caution, caution there. So really interesting to see kind of how that falls out and sort of where people are sort of maybe feeling that COVID fatigue or um, maybe comfort with, with accepting uh, a level of risk um, that they might not have been over the last couple of years. Do you get the sense in, in the responses you got that they feel as if, you know, we're over this? Yeah, it may still be lingering and there may still be some numbers, but for the most part, if you're vaccinated, you're going to be fine. I'm not so sure that's the, the best mindset to have, but it seems to be the prevalent mindset. Yeah, I'm not sure if that's what public health officials would, would say, but I think that's definitely sort of the mentality of a lot of people coming into this holiday season. There's been a lot of years where um, you haven't been able to see family at all, or maybe you did, and there was sort of that threat of Omicron. I think that was last year, and sort of all of these sorts of things kept coming into play. And so I think people are sort of saying there hasn't been a new variant um, announced as of yet, um, and so I'm going to be moving forward with my plans and sort of accepting what happens. I, I'm, I know you and I have probably had this conversation or variations on this conversation last year, just about the same time. And I, and I was skeptical at that time of the number of people that said they were going to comply uh, because I mm-hmm. talked to a lot of people off the record who simply said, oh, yeah, we're going to have the family over. Maybe mm-hmm. maybe not the 25 or 30 people that had in past years, but but at least, you know, maybe in a little bit of the extended family anyway. So I, I, I get the sense that you're bang on here. That a lot of people have just said, look, enough is enough. Uh, I've had the vaccinations. Uh, it's Christmas time, for heaven's sakes. We're going to get together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think a lot of people have that mentality. They've, um, And I think a lot of people have had COVID by this point, too. So they're saying, maybe I have some immunity. I just recently had it. Maybe I'm, I'm getting my booster. I'm just willing to say, um, I'm going to try it out, and, and I'll stay home sick if I need to. But I, I would really like to see my family and friends this year. So the, it's it's a change of attitude, and I'm, you, you mentioned you'd use the comparator between this year and last year. Uh, you know, we can go back two years, I guess. Really, you know, when people were wearing face masks and in some places gloves, you know, even with holiday season and get-togethers and things of this nature. So we seem to have, have, have at least in the minds of most of the people that that you've talked to, anyway, uh, we've crossed over, and and you know, we're trying to put this behind us. There's still some health concerns. Uh, but as one person told me the other day when we talked about this on the program, so there's always going to be health concerns. There's always going to be a flu. There's always going to be other stuff like that. You just have to be, you know, be cautious. And uh, and I, I think most people are just saying, okay, let's just, you know, put the holiday season up there and let's just celebrate it and move on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. People are sort of willing to accept um, the risk. Maybe the risk is, is something they're more comfortable or familiar with and they're just going to move forward and, and see folks this year. Well, it's uh, always great to listen to uh, to the results of the surveys that you do because it really gives us a snapshot as to where our, our heads are at uh, as we deal with some of these issues and juxtapose that with the fact that, for heaven's sakes, it's Christmas time and it's a time for family and for people to get together. Uh, Oksana, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for this today. Yeah, you too. Thank you. Take care. Oksana Kischuk from Abacus Data. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. As we mentioned, uh, it's been a uh, hectic week at Queen's Park, a number of government announcements, uh, an Auditor General's report, and uh, uh, the government, uh, well, feeling some of the heat, some of the pushback on a number of uh, very controversial pieces of legislation. Uh, Yesterday, uh, Premier Ford and the Health Minister, Sylvia Jones, uh, had an announcement about more funding for uh, hospitals and for nurse training for uh, critical care. Uh, but when they turned it over for the question and answer, uh, the questions uh, were not about that. It was almost overwhelmingly uh, about the Auditor General's report, which pointed out some, well, shall we say, concerning areas of government spending. Uh, one of them was apparently uh, the Auditor General staff had uh, gone in as, uh, well, sort of secret shoppers into a number of the casinos 
and uh, found out that, uh, that, well, security was pretty lax and uh, it was very easy for them to launder money through those. Now, that I just irritated uh, the Premier uh, and other people in the media were asking him about this. And basically, uh, the Premier said, look, that's not her jurisdiction at all. Uh, and he was quite upset about that. So during the Q&A yesterday, uh, they asked the Premier, so so what about this idea about you know the, 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 the damning information that's in the Auditor General's report, especially headed with uh, casinos? And this is what the Premier had to say. The Auditor General has to stay in her lane, you know, and, and focus on, on where there's waste of money. You can't do a sting operation. You can't all of a sudden deputize yourself and think you're the Secret Service going around doing sting operations that failed, uh, by the way, and they, they were caught. Now these poor folks that they hired are now banned from the casinos. So she needs to stay in her lane, focus on value for money, and uh, I think she's had a problem doing that over the last little while. So a legitimate concern, or is this the, the classic art of uh, diversion, uh, since there was a lot of heat on them this past week? Talk about that and lots more, so please to welcome for our, our weekly visit about provincial and municipal politics, John Best, who is the publisher of the Bay Observer. John, uh, so great to have you back in the program. It's a busy week this week. Boy, there's a lot to unpack here, isn't there? There really is. I, I'm, I'm kind of surprised that the media drilled down on that, frankly, when I, I would have been asking him endless questions about Bill 23 and the pushback from the municipalities. So it, it was uh, strange that they, they sort of zeroed in on, you know, I, I think the total value of uh, the, the money was uh, that, that was thought to be laundered was relatively small when you compare it to all these housing issues and, and you know, just the, the major stuff facing um, the, the government. I, I kind of agree with him on that point. Uh, I'm not sure that uh, the Auditor General should be hiring secret shoppers. Um, you know, it, it, I mean, she's she's done a great job on, on pointing out various uh, areas where money was not well spent, and uh, he claims that he welcomes that. But you know, there, there's something a little bit off-putting about a provincial agency that has a lot of gravitas and people really pay attention to the Auditor General and the idea of having these people going into casinos uh, and, you know, trying to launder money and then getting caught, as he said, uh, it, it, you know, it, it, that does seem to be just a little bit of a deviation from what you'd normally expect. Well, and I, I share your your views on this. I, I got a lot of time for Bonnie Lissick. I think she's done an outstanding job as as the provincial auditor general, uh, and and really shone the light on things that that we never probably would have realized or or known of had it not been for that. Uh, but to your point, uh, if if this was the OPP that had done that sting investigation, I'd say, yeah, that's your job. You go get them, boys. Uh, but it's not really within the purview of the auditor general's office to to be doing that. In other words. Uh, you know, you're supposed to go over the books and you're supposed to look at government spending uh, and, and not really do an evaluation on how effective security is in some of these facilities unless there's a direct impact on on, on everyday lives. And I, I, I think it was a bit of an overreach, too. But having said that, uh, I don't think that uh, that and I was surprised as you were that, that, that the media were jumping on that. There's a lot more meat in this Auditor General's report that I thought they should have focused on, including Bill 23. Uh, including the fact that they ignored the advice of their own experts about the highway projects uh, and about the green belt. I mean, that that's something I think that really needs to be exposed and talked about. Well, and the one area I, I was reading the the account of uh, that, that business about the highways, 
Um, I have to, and and I think one area where she actually was factually in error was was she said that this business of overriding staff recommendations uh, only happened on highway building. Uh, that the overriding of the staff was something that was new with Ford. I can tell you, as somebody that was lobbying for uh, highway construction with the uh, Southern Ontario Gateway Council, that the previous government, the the McGinty and Wynn government, absolutely uh, overrode recommendations uh, by staff to, for instance, build the mid-pen, to build what is now called Highway 413. Both of those highways were mothballed against reports that, that strongly recommended they be built. So the, the meddling with uh, highway construction did not get invented with Doug Ford. I, I still remember a conversation at the time uh, with the then transportation minister uh, and, uh, at Queen's Park about this. And, and as you remember, uh, the Ernie Eves government, because Mike Harris had long since departed, uh, was almost, they were ready to build the mid-pen. I mean, you know, they just said, okay, let's go. Well, they lost the election, and, and that kind of fell apart as a result of that. And I remember talking to the minister, and he says, oh, it's not really a highway. It's going to be a trade corridor. And I said, you're not going to build it, are you? Well, we haven't decided. I said, yeah, you've just changed the policy. Uh, so you're right. This is not unique. This has been going on in politics for a long time. And 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 the Auditor General did say it is, you know, technically within the purview of governments to spend the money where they want to. We get that. Uh, the, the problem was in the case of these two highways under the Ford administration is the other projects that had already been vetted uh, through uh, the Treasury Board, had gone through all the hoops and all the, uh, the environmental things and funding had been allocated. And, and the government just said, no, we need that money to build these two things. Yeah. And, uh, you know, again, that's probably a political calculation. I guess you'd want to look at who the members are for the writings uh, whose highways are now not being built. But if it's Northern Ontario, there's a chance it might be an NDP writing. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, it's it, it's got to be tough to tell people uh, that the highway that was approved is now not going to get built. Uh, I'm sure it was coached in, in milder terms, probably something like deferred or delayed. Yeah. That's, but, yeah. Uh, you know, the you know, I mean, the government, when you're talking about highways and mega projects, they get announced, they get re-announced uh, countless times. I mean, uh, the, uh, you know, the Highway 6401 bypass, I don't know how many news conferences the media have been asked to attend about that thing. I think it's actually going to get built now, although I don't believe the contracts have been let. So, you know, it, it's, uh, I, I think, what is what we're seeing is this second term government is kind of acting as if this is its last chance to actually implement significant change and uh, some of this stuff is uh, looking like a pretty blunt instrument and and there's some other things here i mean you know the ontario government spent 13 million dollars on what the auditor general calls partisan ads uh, again, not a new idea. That's not unique to the Ford government. Other governments, as a matter of fact, I think all other governments have been accused of that at one time or another. Still remember when uh, when Mike Harris was doing highway construction when he was the premier. It, he he put his his name right on the on the board. Another project by you know Premier Mike Harris on the PC government. Uh, so you know partisan may be in the eyes of the beholder, uh, but I'm glad she brought it up simply because I know others have done it and others in the future will probably do it. But that doesn't mean we just consider it as, well, that's just the way they do business and just, you know, figure it's no big deal. It is a big deal. 
Well, it, it is, but as you say, uh, I can remember seeing highway construction signs with uh, McNaughton's name on it, and I, I, I wouldn't even want to admit how long ago that was. Uh, I mean, governments, you know, whether, you know, it, it's a thin line between announcing and explaining a program. They're running ads right now, uh, not as frequently as the anti uh bill 23 ads but there are ads where the government is trying to explain what it's doing with the green belt i don't think they mention green belt they just talk about building houses you know and and so there's an ad that uh, I, I don't know where it falls uh, it's uh, you know certainly if you're opposed to any expansion of of uh, municipal boundaries you'd say it's a partisan ad on the other hand, we do criticize government quite often. And in fact, I sent a kind of a sharpish email off to the ministry uh, this week, uh, you know, just saying, did you make any attempt to calculate the impact of these uh, development fee cutbacks? Have you any idea what that's going to do to the municipalities, what it's going to cost them? And if you haven't, why haven't you? And, and I got kind of a silly answer back. So we do criticize them for not explaining their programs adequately, but then when they do explain them through ads, it starts to look like partisan advertising. Well, and the reason why, though, John, just to just push back a little bit on that, is because their quote-unquote explanation is usually uh, very tilted in, in their direction. I mean, I, I just got an email from somebody this morning because I was talking on my, my commentary yesterday about the impact this is going to have on municipalities. And I, think, I think the estimate for Hamilton was about $25 million dollars in, in lost right. revenue that they're going to have to find someplace else. Uh, and, and of course, the response from the Ford government that this uh, emailer uh, you, you know threw back at me was, oh, you don't want affordable housing building? Which I said, it's not just for affordable housing. And that's the talking point that, that Minister Clark and the Premier are saying. It's for anybody. If, if you're building a housing development. They could be $800,000 homes. There's still going to be some forgiveness there on development charges. Somebody's got to pay that bill. You're missing the point. And he's missing it because he's just you know reading off the government webpage. Well, and, and Hamilton's chief planner this week, he said, uh, sure, uh, you know, we can reduce these development charges, but there's no guarantee that the developers won't simply take that as additional profit. If there's no mechanism in the bill to ensure that all of those savings are passed on, <clears throat> excuse me, to uh, the, the end buyer, uh, it, it could be a bonanza for, for builders. I, I'm not saying that's going to happen, but uh, the legislation doesn't seem to address that issue. Well, John, um, you've, you've been covering politics long enough. This is a variation on Ronald Reagan's trickle-down economics. You know, we'll, we'll give the people that are going to do all this stuff a break, and, and you know, they're not going to have to pay the bills on this, but, and they'll pass those savings on. And how often does that happen? Yeah, you don't see it a lot. Uh, another interesting thing just about Bill 23, and, and this is just the, the idea of, does, is anybody paying attention to what anybody else is doing so the the ontario home builders association put out a news release late on wednesday that of course argued that the cities uh, are piling up huge uh, you know the, their reserves the, the the money that they collect from developers in fees uh, there's an enormous amount of money that's been accumulated that's not being spent so it's somewhere in the area of six billion for the gta nine billion for the whole province and so what they were calling for is an audit of some of these municipal uh, building fund reserves to see what's going on. The next morning, less than 12 hours later, the minister sends out uh, a letter saying that he's going to call for an audit. 
And I mean, just the optics of a of an industry association demanding something and the minister agreeing to it in less than twenty four hours, and and then they try to claim that they're you know that we, that the development community does not have a a favored uh, position in in access. It it just uh, the timing was just terrible for something like that. Oh, that conjures up the old image of uh, well, that was the graphic for The Godfather, you know, puppets on a string, and and I, I hope it's not that way. But boy, you know, if it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck, uh, John, as always, thank you so much for this. Great having you on the program again today. Uh, have a good week. We'll talk again soon. Thanks, Bill. Nice to be with you. Take care, John. Best publisher of the Bay Observer. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Fascinating story that uh, that I wanted to get some feedback on uh, about purchases of. Uh, of Canadian properties, uh, U.S. border citizens are buying up Canadian recreational properties ahead of a foreign buyer ban. I know governments have announced this, but it actually goes into effect at the end of this year. And uh, this is, I guess, kind of like a fire sale. You know, don't wait till uh, January 2nd. Uh, but it's happening you know, in many, many places in Ontario, in Quebec, and over in B.C., of course. Joining us to talk about this is a Pauline Anger, who is a broker with Royal LePage. Uh, Pauline, great to have you on the program. Thanks so much for the time today. Well, thanks for having me, Bill. Glad to be here. You've been doing this a long time now, selling real estate. What are you seeing up there? But especially when it comes to U.S. contributions and and, and U.S. interest in Canadian properties, it's not a new phenomenon, but is is it becoming more intense? Well, the government announcing the two-year ban on foreign ownership kind of set a spark to many of our neighbors to the south. And as we know, the Canadian dollar versus the American dollar, there's uh, a bit of a difference there these days. And so um, recognizing that perhaps after January 1st, they would not be able to purchase uh, a property in Canada for the next two years. It pushed many uh, of our U.S. citizens, especially the survey was taken in the 17 states that border Canada. And uh, it was very interesting to see that the majority of the people who purchased had purchased after the April announcement. So is it just the Canadian dollar or is there something else going on here? You know, the, because as I mentioned, this is not a new phenomenon. Americans have always kind of been interested in some of the Canadian vacation properties it's because they're great. I mean, that's, that's the, I guess, number one right at the top of the list. But is it just the fact that, you know, this may be our last chance unless, you know, anybody you know wants to get something fabulous at a reduced price. And that seems to be what's at play here. Well, it was interesting because they weren't going to get it at a, fabulous price because we knew that our winter recreational properties had actually increased um, between January and October this year, which which kind of was a push against the norm where we saw residential real estate um, having an adjustment, but uh, not our recreational property. But I think it's a couple of things. First of all, Canada is a great country. How can we not say that? Um, we have some of the greatest ski uh, regions in the world. And uh, for many of the, our U.S. citizens, I think it's the, the worry that maybe in the future and with Canada actually announcing the ban, that maybe they wouldn't have an opportunity to get into this market. Um, we, we're still, and I say this as of today, we still don't know all of the details of that legislation. Uh, the regulations have not been given out. We are hoping that it does not affect recreational property, but at this point, there's uh, no definitive um, answer to what it's going to affect. But I think when you see, you know, the majority of our population lies within 100 kilometers of the U.S. border. 
And I've always said that it's interesting that U.S. citizens don't think of us as foreigners to them or them as foreigners to us. You know, we uh, share a lot of the same, uh, you know, the border. And so we share the same geography in many cases. So for them, I think it was just this great opportunity to look at the fact that Canada was going to ban it. I mean, the name of the legislation was, you know, a ban on foreign ownership. So I think I think that pushed uh, the people because this is only from April to November that this happened. So it was very quick response to that legislation. Well, and I've looked at it too, and you're right. I mean, it seems to be rather ambiguous here. I mean, I've seen some that indicate that uh, the... Uh, that you know, this is going to be exempted from the foreign homebuyers tax. Others suggested, no, 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 they wouldn't do that. They're, they're you know, this, this is we're going to bring the hammer down. So we need to get some clarity on that. Uh, but it's, it's fascinating, and I agree with your assessment. By the way, it's almost like that border is immaterial to those of us that live so close to each other. I mean, years ago here in the, the Hamilton Niagara area, an awful lot of people gravitate to Ellicottville, New York. Yeah, that that was the ski haven for them. It's across the, in western New York. I mind you that, you know, as you say, the Canadian dollar has changed. And I know a lot of those people have sold those places. And now there are a lot of them are moving up to Collingwood Blue Mountain, which is about equidistance away, uh, but it's Canadian territory. And, and you know, people are just banging on the doors there looking for real estate up there. And, and that's growing at, uh, in an incredible rate, too. And we're seeing this, I guess, in Quebec as well. I, you know, if there's a ski hill or a cottage, uh, Americans are interested in it right now because, it, you know, this, this, as you say, may be a, a one-time opportunity for them to grab onto something. Well, and also we've been through two and a half years where we weren't letting the U.S. citizens um, into our country because of the pandemic. So we have, um, you know, uh, just by stories I've heard, you know, Americans who really spent part of their winters in Canada love to come here to ski in the eastern townships, love to come to uh, British Columbia, Alberta, love the ski hills in Ontario, who have not had that opportunity. So it's almost like a bit of that too, you know, we're coming out, well, I'd like to think we are coming out of COVID. And so now, you know, our border is much more open. And I think that's also playing a factor. We've had two and a half years of pent up, you know, a motion to get to Canada to ski our snowmobile. Um, and we have great snow. You know, we look at last winter, it was a great winter for skiing. So I think that's a bit of it as well. It's interesting you know, that it's a combination always of a bunch of factors, but I, coming out of a pandemic when you couldn't come to Canada is probably one of them as well. Well, and you look at some of the resorts, for instance, since we're talking about the ski industry, and there's been kind of an amalgamation of, of those. I mean, you know, a couple of the big entities really are purchasing some of the smaller entities and and they're, you know, there's there's no border there either between Canadian and U.S. and and it's, it's like a lot of other things, like, you know, the, the golf situation. I mean, you can, you know, play on any number of courses if you're a member of that organization or buy a membership into it. Same thing with some of the ski resorts. You know, you can ski in Stowe, Vermont. You can ski at Blue Mountain. I mean, if it's the same company, really. Uh, and that makes it more attractive, I think, for Americans to pop over the border. And I think, uh, you know, it's it's interesting when I talk to U.S. citizens who do look at Canada. They, they love our country. They see it as, you know... Um, very much, you know, very stable, uh, you know, uh, our crime rate is low, people feel very safe here, our economy is very solid. Um, and, and they absolutely, you know, speak very favorably of this uh, country for coming for vacations, and certainly for vacation homes. So I think that's part of it. We're, I mean, 
we're Canadians, we're the friendly nation. And so why wouldn't foreign ownership want to be here? Are you concerned about the legislation? To, uh, just to step back a little bit, and I don't want to get too political about this, but I've talked to other people in, in your industry, Pauline, that say, you know, this you're taking people with money that, that want to invest in real estate here out of the game when you do this. And and they're not all nefarious. We're going to buy 500 properties and let them run down, et cetera. I mean, you know, that was a, a huge problem in British Columbia when it came to residential properties, not so much in the rest of the country, yet they seem to be, you know, blanketing everybody with this same piece of legislation. And I'm hearing from a lot of them, it's not really necessary. What, what do you think? Well, it's interesting. We write legislation in times that the, politics dictated. So I look at this one, we came through 2021 with um, a phenomenal real estate market that was very difficult for buyers. Our sellers were ecstatic in most cases, um, but our buyers were having a very difficult time. So the legislation was written, you know, with that happening, but then the market changed. So, you know, it's it's interesting. And when we look at foreign ownership, you know, is that a huge part of of um, who's buying Canada? I'm, you know, the, the numbers have never been clear. And the other thing is the legislation. You know, we're now nine months since it was uh, uh, announced, still without what how is it going to affect it? You know, and if you're moving to Canada to have a job, you know, to to um, immigrate to our country, you know, how's that affecting you, you know, uh, what's going to happen. So it's, it's, it's interesting, but I always say sometimes we, you know, close the door after the horse ran out. And in this case, <laughs> our 2021 market probably dictated this more than anything, but we're not seeing that. And we're not going to see that, you know, the, all of the announcements about what we're going to see in a 2023 market are certainly not a 2021 market. Well, yeah, the quote-unquote correction that they were hoping to make has already happened. You've seen that, of course, with the prices that are around these days. We'll be watching with great interest. Pauline, thank you so much for spending some time with us. Really appreciate it today. It's a pleasure to be here. Take care. Take care. Pauline Andrew, uh, broker with uh, Royal LePage here in Ontario, looking at the uh, real estate trends and uh, the impact that legislation is going to have on 2023. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.